You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the world, word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You cannot control your circumstances, but you, however, can control your response can't control your circumstances, you can control your response. I've, I've heard and read this a lot, especially this year. And for the most part, it is pretty good advice. When life is out of control, stop trying to change everything around you. Focus on your response. But the statement, if you ask me, the statement is lacking because it assumes that we naturally have complete control over our responses, that I can simply choose to respond graciously, wisely, and patiently every single time. That within me, I have the inherent ability to always do the right things in the face of bad situations. But I'm not sure that that's how it works. And really, the Bible is far more realistic than that, and it's filled with countless testimonies of people, like, for instance, the Apostle Paul, who confesses elsewhere in scripture in Romans 7 that I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. What is going on? I can't make sense of this. Maybe a more contemporary example would be from the 20th century, an author Uh, named Brandon Brandon Manning, who said this. When I get honest, I admit that I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said that I'm a rational animal. I say that I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Today, I want us to focus on how, despite being, all of us, a bundle of paradoxes, how we can actually begin, by God's grace, to bridge the gap, that vast gap between bad situations and right responses. Now, as I mentioned on Christmas, Time Magazine uh, said that 2020, you know, published this, this cover page saying that 2020 was the worst year ever. 
the challenges, the disappointments, the setbacks, the suffering, the uncertainty, even death. For many of us, we've seen nothing like it in our lifetime. But the interesting thing is, and I've noticed this from a number of conversations I've, I've had and even just from my own experience this year, is that the thing that people have struggled with most is not simply unstable jobs or political division or exposure to racism or pandemic or fill in the blank. I think for most of us, it's been that internal struggle that all of the external pressures have seemed to magnify and to bring to the surface all of the internal stuff that we typically ignore and suppress that has now begun to bubble up and pour out. 2020 has brought out some of the best in us. We've seen extreme cases of generosity. We've seen an impulse towards justice. We've seen concern for the most vulnerable among us, but it's also brought out some of the worst in us. Fear, jealousy, hatred, conflict. You see, this is precisely what pressure does. Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India around 100 years ago, used a very simple yet profound illustration to describe our lives. She says, we are a cup. And when we are bumped or when we are jolted, what was within us is what's going to be coming out. We are a cup. 2020, the worst year ever, is that jolt. And the question is, what is coming out of us? What is being poured out? And and this is how Paul is getting us to think about our lives here in Philippians 2, as drinks, as vessels, as cups, and more specifically, as drink offerings being poured out. Not randomly poured out, not haphazardly being jolted, not suffering for no reason, but intentionally poured out. And what will be coming out will either be bitter or it will be sweet. And he illustrates this. It's either going to be grumbling and disputing or it's going to be gladness and rejoicing. And so in a year where we're, I think for many of us, we feel helpless and out of control and ineffective and like we're lacking any ability to influence any kind of real change in this world, we are told here that there's actually a way for us to express the beauty of Jesus Christ within us that will then change the landscape of the world around us. That, and you don't have to, to be brilliant, you don't have to be powerful, you don't have to be influential. You simply have to be willing to be tipped over and poured out. Or in other words, you simply have to be willing to suffer well. And willing to engage in the difficult inner work of of beginning to replace the bitterness that just naturally tends to brew within us with the fermenting joy of our salvation, which God stirs within us so that what comes out is sweet. And what we're told here is the result will be the beauty of Jesus Christ being illuminated in the midst of our dark and twisted generation. This is what God is doing in and through us reality. This is what God is actively doing through his people, replacing the bitterness of 2020 with the sweetness of heaven. And I want to get in on this, and I hope you do too. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage. There's a lot we're not going to be able to to mention here, but we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at bitterness. We're going to look below the surface. And then finally, we're going to look at beauty. Now let's look first at this theme of bitterness. Now Paul uses two ways of describing our natural human tendency as people who find themselves under pressure. And it's found in verse 14 with a command or an instruction. It says this, Do all things, not some things, not most things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, let's look at these two words here. First, grumbling. Now, grumbling is an external expression. It's when we go public with our complaints. And like a virus, that's a pretty relevant illustration here. Like like a virus, the Bible describes grumbling as the contagious spreading of complaint, of discontentment, of fear, of resentment, and doubt. It's the contagion of bitterness. It's the taking off the mask and coughing and sneezings of resentment on a people's face. It's the season of super spreading. And I think for a lot of us in this season, especially like 2020, we are grumbling super spreaders. Now, sometimes it's hard to imagine what the Bible's talking about. There, there are things where I read, I'm like, I, have, I, I, I really can't grasp what it's getting at here. Uh, sometimes it's hard to, to, to fathom, you know, the, the patterns and the behaviors and the attitudes that the Bible describes. This is not one of those. This is very clear. If, if we need an illustration of grumbling, just uh, go on your social media. Begin to scroll. What do you see? What kind, of, what kind of ways are people interacting with one another? Or how about, let's make it more personal. Recall your conversations over the last few weeks. Recall your conversations with family over the holidays. Recall your conversations with friends. Recall your conversations with coworkers. Grumbling is everywhere. And, and our culture is steeped in it. Now, the interesting thing is, how much grumbling today is cloaked as self-expression. Self-expression is seen today by most as a modern moral virtue, where it is therefore wrong to suppress your complaint. It's wrong to not speak your mind and to spew whatever it is that you're thinking or feeling. But what we need to recognize is that there is a big difference between being emotionally aware of yourself and making everyone else emotionally aware of yourself. There's a big difference between being self-aware. Being self-aware is necessary. Making everyone aware is not necessary. Bringing our fears, bringing our, our complaints and our doubts and even our anger before God is necessary. In fact, read through the Psalms. Much of the Psalms is bringing fears and anger and complaints and even groaning to God. It's necessary. But broadcasting them carelessly is not. And what can end up happening, as we see this from the testimony of Scripture, is that it can actually begin to undermine the hope and the resolve of the people around us. As I mentioned, it's like a contagious virus, and it can begin to spread and make the people around us sick. You may see grumbling as simply venting, but the Bible describes it as sickening the souls of others. 
We may excuse it and say, well, I only grumble to the people that I'm closest to, my, to my closest friends and family. Okay, so you're only desiring to infect the people closest to you. We see grumbling. But secondly, we see here disputing, which is a more internal thing. Now, now commentators agree this is a very difficult word uh, to interpret, but the word seems to point to an internal dispute. So grumbling is the external expression of our complaints as we go public with our complaints. Disputing is entertaining the internal monologues. It's the stirring up of questioning and doubts and mistrust within. It's those moments, recall these moments when you're, you're in bed and you can't sleep or you're in the shower or it's in the quiet lull of a day or you're alone in the car and there's no noise around you. It's where you begin to ruminate. It's where you begin to ruminate on the hurts and the resentments and the offenses where you begin to craft your comeback and you begin to stroke your, your wounded ego. It's resenting the, the lack of recognition or the lack of, appre the lack of appreciation. It's the sulking. It's the self-loathing. It can even be self-hatred. It's allowing your mind to go down very dark paths that ultimately wind up undermining hope and joy and inevitably, inevitably manifest. James, the Apostle James in James 4 says, you want to know why you have so much conflict in your life? It's because you have so much conflict inside. There's a direct correlation. Or Jesus in Luke 6 would say it this way, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What is going on inside is going to come out. It's inevitable. And so what that means is it's very important that we take a frequent assessment, a daily, if not hourly assessment, of our internal disputing and, and begin to ask questions of ourselves. Where does my mind go when I'm quiet? When all of the noise ceases, when there's no one around, when I'm not putting on the performance, when I have no one to speak to, where does my mind begin to drift to? What conversations do I replay over and over again in my mind? What unreasonable expectation do I keep getting drawn back to? What narrative of my life of what I think that I deserve do I keep being pulled back to? What, what anger, what resentment, what unforgiveness, what self-hatred am I constantly revisiting when my mind is still? Because these things unchecked will eventually manifest. As we see this theme of bitterness, but let's look secondly, this theme of, of, of below the surface. And it, I find it helpful that Paul gives us two words, grumbling and disputing, to describe our natural tendency because it reminds us that our lives are like icebergs. Now, if you've ever seen an iceberg, you know that there's the portion above, visible above the surface, that's typically about 10% of the mass of an iceberg. And then there's the portion below the surface, which is typically about 90% of the mass. And like most icebergs, what is hidden below the surface is going to be bigger than what is visible. And like most icebergs, what is hidden below the surface is going to be the portion that we tend to overlook or ignore. 
And so Paul uses these series of word combos. He says fear and trembling, which describes inner awe and reverence towards God, and then trembling. It's, it's the effect of straining. If you've ever been working out and you're maxing out or you're stretching beyond that, that point of what you think you're capable of, your body will actually begin to shake. It'll begin to tremble. So it's describing inner reverence and the trembling of straining towards honoring God. Will and work, so the inner desires and actions. Grumbling and disputing, gladness, the, the inner joy, and rejoicing, the expressing of this joy. These are all ways of describing the internal and the external. The internal, the external. And what is clear from this passage and elsewhere in Scripture is that the only hope for us to change the external, right, our responses, our interactions with people, is for God by his Holy Spirit to graciously transform the internal. And this is the hope and the good news that Paul begins this idea with in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Friend, God is at work in you, whether you recognize it or not, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God working in you. And so a godly expression of faith is not just simply curbing you're grumbling. It's not putting tape over your mouth and controlling your external behavior. It's primarily about yielding to or trusting God's work within us. Transforming him, transforming the below the surface parts of our lives. Transforming not just our actions, though these are important, but also our inner dispositions. And the idea here, the big idea here, I think, is that we work out, he says, work out your own salvation, we work out what God has first worked in. And, and the Bible calls us to express or to live out the reality of what God has done for us in Christ and the reality of what God continues to do in us. This is what it means to walk by faith or to live by faith, to persevere, to press on trusting in what God has done and will continue to do. And so the way that we pursue this inner work here, Paul tells us, is by holding fast to the word of life or holding fast to the gospel. Now, this word here for holding fast, it can mean cling, and that's certainly part of the Christian life. We cling to Christ, but it also can mean to apply to press in, like think of like a topical cream, pressing it in, pressing it in. We are called to continually press in the gospel. And what I think that Paul is getting at here is the way that you experience the inner work of God in a transformative way, in a way that changes your life forever, is by working the gospel deep into your heart. Working the, the truth that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are approved by God. That the one who had every reason to resent us chose instead to love us and to redeem us. That we have the inheritance of Jesus, that we have a future in him, that we have a place in his kingdom, that we are made new with a new identity, with a, with a new future, with a new power to live. That we are made new. 
And so instead of clinging to our disappointments, instead of clinging to our failures or the failures of others, instead of clinging and pressing in our fears, we have to hold fast to the word of life. Instead of ruminating on the narrative of our pain and the narrative of our resentments, we have to daily press the story of the gospel deep into our hearts. And the hope that the Bible gives us is that it will begin to sweeten that which is bitter within us. It will begin to change us. In the Old Testament, as Moses led uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt through you know, the parted Red Sea and into the wilderness, their, one of the first obstacles they face in the wilderness is that they can't find any water. They've been delivered, and now everyone's like, okay, great, God delivered us to come here and die. And the only water that they could find at that point in the, in the wilderness was the bitter waters of Mara. In the Bible, there's this interesting thing here. There's like a real-time illustration occurring because the people, they begin to grumble. The people begin to express their bitterness. And so there's this combination here, bitter waters for a bitter people. And so Moses cries out to God because, listen to this, Moses recognizes that the threat of bitterness within is actually more deadly and violent than the threat of foreign armies without. And so he cries out to God, God, help us because the people are grumbling. Help us because we have grown bitter. And God does this strange thing. God does strange things. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that tree and I want you to put it in the water. And in Exodus 15, it says that when Moses took the tree and he put it in the water, the water became sweet. What does that mean for us today? It means the gospel, the good news that Jesus, of Jesus on the cross, on the tree, that he was plunged into the bitter waters of sin, into the bitter waters of chaos, and judgment so that we, the children of God by faith, could drink of the sweet life of his salvation. The tree was plunged into the water. And in one way, this is a once and for all thing. Christ has died and risen. It is finished. But in another sense, this is something that we have to reapply daily. You, you've got to press the tree into the bitter waters within. You've got to get this good news below the surface of your heart through the word, through gospel-soaked conversations, through gospel-rich songs. You've got to get the tree in the water to make the water sweet. And this is the way that we transform the inner in a way that will be expressed externally. Now, in Greek mythology, there was the myth of the sirens. There were these mythological creatures that were beautiful and yet extremely dangerous creatures that lured boats into the rocks by their singing. And because their songs were so alluring, they would steer the ears of the captains of these ships into these treacherous places, and no one made it through safely. But as one ship was passing through this mysterious island area, the captain of the ship asked Orpheus, who was a skilled musician on board, to begin to play his music. And the myth goes that as he began to play his instrument so beautifully and so loudly that his song on board began to completely drown out the sirens' songs and they were able to pass by safely. In just two chapters, the Apostle Paul is gonna say something very similar. He says in Philippians 4, 
whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things, ruminate on these things, sing this song within. How can you divert your heart from being pulled towards the treacherous rocks of bitterness, being pulled towards that inner dispute. You've got to replace it with something more beautiful. You've got to replace it with the beautiful news of Christ and him crucified. You've got to replace it with the oil of gladness, with the joy of salvation, with the testimony of God's goodness in your life and the life of the people around you. Because these are the only things that are potent enough to eliminate the bitterness of the inner dispute. The tree has got to get in the water. The news of Jesus has got to be pressed below the surface. And this is the only way that we can truly repent of or turn from our bitterness when we are drawn away by something more beautiful, namely Christ. That leads us to our final point of beauty. Paul says in verses 17 through 18, even if... I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so there are two themes that run side by side throughout this entire letter to the Philippians. It's joy and suffering. And Paul is urging the church here to continue in joy despite the fact that he has been imprisoned and despite the fact that he has faced numerous setbacks, he's preparing them for his own death so that they are not overwhelmed and overcome by despair when it happens. And so Paul illustrates this, and he says, my life is like a drink offering being poured out. He literally calls himself a libation. Like in the ancient world, the drink offering, the sweet, costly wine that would be poured out on a burnt offering. And he wants the church to know that his life is a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice of Jesus, being poured out on the faith of the people. As Jesus lovingly sacrificed himself for the people, as he willingly poured himself out, as Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself. So we are being poured out for others. We are being emptied in honor of Jesus. And so when Paul is tipped over when Paul is poured out, which is just another way of saying suffering loss. When he suffers and loses, he describes the content coming out as being sweet like wine. If you cut Paul, he's going to bleed. But what he bleeds is gladness and rejoicing. What pours out is rejoicing. And as he's prepared the Philippian church for their painful future, he urges them to do the same. And as we prepare for an uncertain year ahead, 2021, I want to urge you to do the same as well. When you are cut, when you are wounded, when, when your comforts and your freedoms are compromised, when life turns you upside down and pours you out, You've got to make sure that what is coming out is gladness and rejoicing. Let it be the beauty of Jesus pouring out of us because reality, there's much at stake here. 
the strength of our witness in the city of Stockton is going to be based on how we respond to pain. The reputation of this church hinges on how you and I respond to loss. Will it be bitter or will it be sweet? I'm gonna close with a, a folktale from India from centuries and centuries ago. And it goes like this. There was a water bearer whose job was to go fetch water with two large pots, one on each side of a pole on their shoulders, on their shoulder. And one of the pots was cracked while the other pot was fully intact. And the intact pot delivered the water each time completely full while the cracked pot only came back half full. And this went on day after day after years. The undamaged pot would boast of all of its accomplishments. Look at how much water I deliver while the broken pot was deeply ashamed. And it was miserable to think of all the ways that it had wasted this water and all the waste that it was responsible for, responsible for and how they had really dishonored the one you know, that carried them tirelessly every single day. And so one day the cracked pot couldn't take it anymore. And they spoke to the water bearer saying, I am so ashamed of my brokenness. I'm so ashamed of my lack. You work so well while I am so incapable to fulfill my responsibility. And the water bearer listened and then kindly responded, I want you to pay attention to something as we walk back from the stream. I want you to pay attention to the beautiful flowers growing alongside the path. I planted flowers along the path, and every single day, you have served to water them. You resented your crack. You resented the shattered hopes of everything that you thought you should be, but I've used it to create beauty. Friend, your broken plans, your broken dreams, your broken year, the hurt, the fatigue, the disappointment, the setbacks, all the shattered hopes. It's all the very crack through which the life of Christ has been poured out through you in order to bring beauty around you so that the sweetness of heaven may begin to fill a world that is steeped in bitterness. And so what that means for us here is that this life without blemish that Paul describes here, this life without blemish does not mean that there aren't any cracks in our lives. It doesn't mean that everything goes according to plan and everything is fulfilled like it should be. The life without blemish means that when we are wounded and when we are cracked and when we are broken and when we are poured out, it's the beauty of Jesus that's coming out. So I want, to, I want us to, to end, really, this year with a question. What's 2021 going to bring us? And the honest answer is I have no idea. But I can almost anticipate it's going to bring a jolt. It's going to bring a bump with it. And the question for us to consider, the, the question that we have to ponder today, reality, what's going to be coming out of us? The bitterness of our natural tendencies or the sweetness of Christ in heaven? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...